Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, December 1st, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Recovered from the turkey? <laughs> Didn't have any at all. <laughs> <laughs> Man after my own heart. You know, it's really funny because um, somebody pointed out that Thanksgiving is like the only time of year, the only thing that we ever celebrate with turkey and that nobody really likes turkey and it's dry and things like that. <laughs> so I'm very interested how, you know, what, what turkey uh, <clears throat> lobbyists uh, press us into this uh this turkey thing. Well, it's the tradition from uh, yeah. allegedly the pilgrims ate it way back when, so that's why we're still doing it. But the place <laughs> I was invited to, they served salmon, which was fine with me. Oh, <laughs> salmon is very good. You bet. And healthy for you. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Do you have sta- salmon stuffing? <laughs> no, that's where she drew the line. Didn't make any stuffing at all. <laughs> Are you canned uh, cranberries or real cranberries? Real cranberries, yeah. I was impressed, yeah. Very nice. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, and we should also say that on uh, December 12th, uh, sponsored by the Drama Desk, you are going to be chatting with Jonathan Groff at Ripley Greer uh, from 4.45 to 6 p.m., and I think as far as I knew that it was uh, just a Drama Desk-only thing, but is it open to the public yet? Or Oh, no, it is. Uh, yeah, we have a limited amount of seats open to the public, and actually... Um our listeners here are the first to hear of it. Uh, just email me at michael at broadwaystars.com. And uh, I would say a limit of two per person. And it's $5 <laughs> uh, per person for non-drama desk members, which, you know, hopefully is not onerous. Jonathan, needless to say, is is quite quite in the news at the moment between Little Shop of Horrors Off-Broadway, which is a huge success, and Frozen 2, the film, which is <laughs> uh, yeah. shaping up to be as big a phenomenon as the first one. So, yeah. And Frozen 2, I, uh, go see it. It is as good as as the first Frozen, which is not always the case. Sometimes the, oh, yeah. the, the subsequent versions of the Disney movies, The Lion King one and a half or something like that, The Lion King two, they were in in my opinion, they were not as good as the original Lion King, but Frozen Two is really, really good. Yes, so, you're right, and and you're right, it is not always the case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, and Groff's office is uh <laughs> when he leaves when he leaves a little shop, he is going to be replaced. Uh, they announced that this week as well. Yeah, by so, Gideon Glick, who has Gideon already Glick, yeah. replaced him for two weeks uh, while Jonathan was doing, I guess, promos for Frozen 2. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I'm going to have to go see Little Shop again because I love Gideon and uh, and the show as well. And so this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that Little Shop stays around for a while. You know, it, it's such a great show and uh, fun to have it back in the uh, the tiny West Side Theater. Yes. So, Michael, first up, uh, you got to see The Inheritance. Peter talked about it a few weeks ago, but uh, I think The Inheritance has a special meaning, especially on a day like today. So why don't you tell us what you thought about The Inheritance first? 
Well, I just realized about an hour ago that yes, today is World AIDS Day, and the inheritance is very much about the AIDS tragedy. Not solely about that, but a great deal of it is. And actually, I would say the most effective parts of it are. This was a very surprising experience to me. I had heard uh, from several people that they did like part one of the inheritance better than part two. But I was not not prepared for my reaction, which is that uh, on a scale of one to 10, uh, I, I would give the first part maybe an eight or a nine, and the second part maybe a one and a half. Wow. I, mm-hmm. I could not believe how much less I liked the second part. Uh, I thought it seemed as if the playwright, Matthew Lopez, completely ran out of inspiration uh, and just r- started resorting to nothing but melodrama and bathos bathos however you pronounce that word and i i know and and that's interesting because of course i have no reason to necessarily believe he wrote the play absolutely chronologically uh playwrights often don't but but however order whatever order he wrote it in that's what i felt i was i was flabbergasted um Act two, a uh, part two, excuse me, I have to stop saying act two. Part two uh, seemed, almost all of it seemed superfluous and, and it was just a lot of yelling and a lot of rehashing and totally unnecessary. I, I think that this whole idea of making it two parts to begin with, uh, with each part about three and a half hours long, was, I hate to say it, but it's, it just kind of seems like hubris. And I suppose maybe the model was Angels in America, uh, the primary model, um, and then maybe some other show. You know, we, we do seem to have a rash of these lately. Uh, Harry Potter is another example. And then, of course, we had Coast of Utopia, which was three full-length plays. And... Uh, but to me, if you're going to do that, you, you really have to have the material support, the tremendous investment of time and money on the part of the audience. And I just did not, did not think that part two was worth it in this case. In fact, the other night I was at a restaurant and I heard some uh, fellows talking and they were headed to part one. And, and, and one of them was saying, um, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to see part two because, and then he, he gave several reasons why he didn't think they would be able to. Uh, and I said, well, I said, for what it's worth, I said, and of course, it's only my opinion, but I said, if you do have to miss part two, I don't think you'll be missing anything. And another thing is, uh, without giving too much away, uh, act uh, part one, <laughs> sorry, part one ends with a with a very, very moving coup de théâtre, which is untoppable in, in terms of its effect on the audience. So that should have been the end of the entire piece, whether it was uh, in one parts or, or, or one part or two parts. Um, that, w- I think, was a terrific mistake not to make it the, cl- the climax of the entire 
work. Uh, and I'm very surprised he didn't do that. But anyway, um, this play is by Matthew Lopez, directed by Stephen Daldry. Was This production was, uh, well, it, it first was done in, in London, and now it's here uh, on Broadway. And it is... Uh, the play is theoretically inspired by or based on or adapted from Howard's end, depending on, on who you talk to. But that's uh, a piece that I have only a, a glancing familiarity with. And I have to say, um, I just, I just don't see it uh, in, in some ways it's very, uh, uh, I mean, it's very obvious there's even a, a character. E.M. <laughs> Forster is a character in the play uh and he walks through especially uh, at the beginning but then he comes back at various other places um and so i guess that was the inspiration uh, for for the playwright matthew lopez but in terms of the actual plot and characters i i i don't think it was even necessary to make the point because there's not enough of it that corresponds to, to really keep stressing it. And generally speaking, um, Howard's End, like so many British works of literature and the theater, is largely about class, uh, class warfare or the, 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 the conflict between the middle class, the upper class, and the lower class. But uh, the inheritance being set in America, uh, you know, I, I think we're we've never been quite as conscious of the, of the classes being as rigid as they are or have been in England. And so therefore I, I, I don't think that really enters into the plot here much at all. I mean, we do have representatives of the different classes, but it just didn't seem like that was anywhere near the, the primary focus of the narrative. So I, I, I don't understand that whole thing. Um, Part one, as I said, vastly superior to part two. Uh, I felt that part two was melodramatic. It was overstuffed. And I thought there were three or four endings to part two. And actually, I hate to say it, I got, it got to a point where I couldn't wait for it to end. And I'm sad to say that the great Lois Smith, uh, well, I'm happy that she is in the play, but to me, her monologue, her big monologue towards the end of, the, of part two seemed so generic that it didn't really have much of an effect, nothing compared to the ending of part one, which I discussed earlier. Uh, and that's really saying something for, well, I, you know, just in general, I'll, I'll, I'll say it's, it's about a mother talking about her son's death from AIDS. And the fact that it, that the audience wasn't in tears for that one, to me, indicates that there's some severe problems in the writing uh, and the placement of that monologue. So that's what I felt. Uh, characters, uh, several of the characters in this play, I think, are constructs more than human beings. There's a writer named Toby Darling. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's supposed to be a stage name. I forget if that's actually made clear, but he didn't seem like a real person. Uh, there's doubling, lots of doubling in this work that seems completely unnecessary to me. There's a fine um, young actor uh, who plays two roles. Uh, he plays an actor named Adam, and then he plays a hustler named Leo. And I just didn't think that uh, the actor character disappears um, 
you know, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, towards the end of the first part, and, and then we never see him again. So I didn't see why that had to be there. I think Samuel Levine would have been much more effective had he been limited to one of the two roles, and because he is a really wonderful actor, as is Andrew Burnap as Toby Darling and Kyle Soler as Eric Glass. We have uh, lots of other fine act- actors in this play. John Benjamin Hickey as Henry Wilcox. But I... Um, I, I don't have much else to say about it. I, oh, I felt that the pop culture references uh, started to become a little annoying because there were so many of them. And that always, to me, is a sign of uh, not great playwriting because you're just getting an effect by mentioning something that's going to get a response from the audience, a chuckle of recognition. But plays like that don't age very well. And I think that was a big mistake. Um, also, uh, there was a very weird moment where, uh, as I said, Toby Darling is a writer, and one of, he had written a novel, which is being adapted uh, for the theater. And at some point, a bunch of them are talking, and uh, theater critics are brought up. And someone mentions, of all people, Kenneth Tynan. Um, now, why would they mention Kenneth Tynan, who died in 1980? It, it, it didn't seem like he would be the name that would come up. Uh, so I don't know if that was just the playwright reaching. I didn't really get that. Um, that those are my basic feelings about The Inheritance. I, I, I was really very surprised by how much more I liked part one than part two. And uh, if you see one or both, uh, I would be very, very curious to hear the audience response from from other people. All right. So that's Michael's take on The Inheritance. Uh, We mentioned uh, at the top of this interview that today is December 1st, World AIDS Day, and and how that ties in with uh, the storyline and The Inheritance. And also I've seen a lot of... uh, 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 social media postings about a Michael Bennett article in the New York Times uh, from the 80s that, uh, I, you know, Michael Bennett is somebody who, uh, just one of the many people that Broadway lost to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Um, and I thought it was uh, a good time to reflect upon uh, World AIDS Day and Michael Bennett. So, Peter, what was your remembrances of Michael Bennett? Well, what I remember more than anything else was the fact that um, I was about to fly to Vienna on the day that I got the news. Um, It was early July 1987, I believe. And um, uh, it really haunted me all the way to Vienna. And I got off. And uh, of course, the first thing I ever do when I travel and uh, land in an airport is uh, find a wear magazine type of thing to see what's playing. Hmm. And I opened up and there was an ad for a chorus line that wasn't in Vienna at the time, but it was an ad about the show coming. Um, Way back when, I had tickets for uh, the Summer Stock Tour of A Joyful Noise, a musical that wouldn't last long on Broadway at all. And... um, And um, uh, what happened was uh, my parents decided at the last minute to go to Baltimore uh, to see relatives. And that's where I met the woman that would become my wife. And I also saw the pajama game with Liza Minnelli there. And um, so I thought because Joyful Noise was such an incredible flop, uh, I thought, wow, isn't it great? I I got to see Liza Minnelli in the pajama game and I, I didn't have to see this terrible flop. However, if I had seen that terrible flop, 
would I have said, but gee, the choreography is magnificent because <laughs> he did get a Tony nomination for that, even though the show ran, I think, 12 performances. So, um, so I was um, very surprised uh, when I saw him get a Tony nomination, considering the show lasted no time at all. And um, so it, it really was a missed opportunity. Would I have said too, I'm not sure if at some point, both Donna McKechnie and, and Tommy Toon were involved with the Joyful Noise. I don't know if they were in it in that Summerstock trial, but I said, gee, that tall guy's really good, or wow, that woman's a wonderful dancer. But obviously, early in the game, he could really pick out people who were really sensational. I also was supposed to see Henry Sweet Henry, his next show, for which he got a Tony nomination, and again was a, a failure, not as quick as Joyful Noise. And when you know there was a terrible snowstorm and I couldn't get up from Boston, it was just the, the roads were just impassable. So, uh, so I came late to Michael Bennett, I'm sorry to say. And uh, it pains me amazingly that I didn't see those early shows. I did see Seesaw, which was tremendously effective. And um, because Seesaw opened so early, uh, late in the season, it carried over to the next year. And uh, so by the time I saw it, in fact, uh, Ken Howard had left and John Gavin had come in and they had moved from the Hellinger. Um, I'm sorry, from the Eurus to the Hellinger. Um, so uh, that's when I really said, whoa, this guy is really good. Yes, now I understand these Tony nominations. Um, and uh, because it opened so late, um, he did get a Tony Award the next year, and I had seen the show by that time. And um, I saw that coming. I really did. Um, there was no uh, doubt in my mind that he would win that year. So, um, and after that, of course, um, it was really terrific. I, I really felt bad for Ballroom because it had the stigma as so many shows do. The, the one after the enormous hit uh, really has a tough time following it up. But his work on Ballroom was exquisite, both as a director and choreographer. So who knows what would have happened had this uh, plague not happened because he was on work on a show called Scandal, which was to star Susie Kurtz and was going to have music and lyrics by Jimmy Webb, who had great success as a pop songwriter in the um, late 60s with Up, Up and Away and Didn't We and, and many, many other hits. And uh, we'll just never know. But uh, people who did see even the workshops of Scandal said it was even more significant choreography than a chorus line we'll never know but um but nevertheless how i wish for more reasons than one that i didn't go to baltimore that time and see um pajama gate because that's where i met my wife who <laughs> well that's another story that marriage but anyway you get the point <laughs> with thanksgiving having just passed i noticed several people posted on social media various clips of turkey lurkey time yeah in uh, one or more perform, I think there are at least two videos of two different performances with Donna McKechnie and one or more of the other original uh, women. And then, of course, there was the version from the movie Camp. And yeah. then there are various versions of like just, you know, regular people doing the around, yeah. <laughs> But um, that was, I guess, my first experience, my first live experience of, of um, Michael Bennett. When I saw Promises, Promises, the original production. So I came to him even later than Peter, but uh, he certainly was a, was a genius. I noticed um, someone today earlier posted a, a, a heartbreaking list of, you know, just a fraction of the great artists who were lost to AIDS. Mm. And there was one name on it that I had never known. I had never known this. Of all people, Isaac Asimov. Did you know Died that? Of AIDS? Died he, of AIDS? he apparently got it from wow. a blood he got it from oh. a blood transfusion. Oh, I see. And there was such stigma at the time. Uh, uh. it was right before uh, Arthur Ashe. 
Wow. And so his family initially decided to basically lie about it. Uh, wow. And then, and then years later, uh, I think 10 years later, they, they realized that it was important for people to know. Mm. So uh, it's, you know, incalculable, the, the, the human and artistic loss of that plague. Mm. All right. So uh, this article that I had mentioned before, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I just want to read the beginning of it. And I didn't realize at the time until just this moment, it was written by Jeremy Girard. Hmm. So uh, ah. it's it's called My, Why Michael Bennett Has Said Goodbye for Now to Broadway. Uh, and the article, I'll just read the beginning of it. By the standards of Manhattan real estate deals, it may have been a small change, but when Michael Bennett last month sold the building on Broadway between 19th and 20th Streets has been the base of his operation since 1978, the intricate family that is now New York theater dancing theater uh, community shivered. So that was 890 Broadway. I mean, that is such a storied building. And get this, he sold it for $15 million. It's got to be yeah. worth more than $200 million now. Sure, sure. I was going to NYU during uh, much of the time while that building was in operation, and I, mm. I was in it several times. And, and now it, I look back on it as a kind of a, a shrine or something. Sure. Yeah. So I will put a link to that in the show notes uh, if you're interested in reading this article by uh, Jeremy Gerard and Michael Bennett. Uh, and uh, check it out if you'd like. So I neglected to do trivia and a few other things at the top of the show. So, uh, Peter, why don't you give us an answer to last week's trivia? Sure, sure. That's funny. I, I have a feeling that a lot of people who do uh, zip through this uh, looking mm -hmm. for uh, are going to be a little flummoxed. Uh, that yeah. the, uh, sure. <laughs> it's neither at the beginning nor the end, but here we go. <laughs> All right. So last week, when this musical premiered in the late 80s, its opening number included one Italian word. Perhaps people didn't understand it for the early part of this new century when the same number was used as the second song in a completely different musical, an English word was used instead, although that word didn't even mean the same thing as the original one. What's the song, the word, and the two shows? Okay. In Legs Diamond, Peter Allen sang in When I Get My Name in Lights that he wants his Fachi on the front page. In The Boy from Oz, the bio musical about Peter Allen, Hugh Jackman sang that he wants to get his picture on the front page. Fachi is basically a slang Italian word for face, not picture. So Sean Logan was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner, Brigadude, Donald Tessioni, and Ingrid Gammerman. And just when I thought we'd stumped Tony Janicki. Ah. He got in under the wire on Friday at 11.39 a.m. <laughs> so he gets it too. <laughs> All right. So at the, uh, you know, maybe towards the end of the broadcast, we'll uh, ask you the question for next week's. Okay. I'm I did to get to meet Tony when he was in New York. Yes, thank God recently. you did, because you could verify there is such a person. Oh, you know, yes. Some people have said, oh, there's no such person. <laughs> so, Oh, he very much exists. Yeah, he's not a figment of our imagination. 
on my imagination, anyway. <laughs> the two other things that I neglected to talk about at the top of the show, because we were so excited about Jonathan Groff and Michael Portantia talking at Ripley Greer coming up on December 12th. Mm-hmm. See that plug I did there? Thank mm-hmm. you. So, <laughs> Every little bit counts. Can, yeah, and you can uh, see Michael and Jonathan uh, if you email him. If you go to the show notes, I'll have that in there. But the two other things that I forgot to mention was we had a Broadway radio special. We talked to Michael Longoria about his new album uh, and played a bunch of clips there. So if uh, you're interested in Michael Longoria and listening to his new album and uh, and hear him talk about it, go back in the feed and you can listen to that. We also had a special come to us from our friends over Curtain Call in the UK. They have an eight-part series called Welcome to the Rock, which is about the the development of uh, Come From Away. And that played in our feed um, Tuesday or Wednesday of last week. And uh, it's very interesting. And all eight episodes are coming up in the next eight weeks through the end of the year. So um, so take a listen to that as well in the feed. All right. So uh, next thing up is, Peter, you got over to the Signature to see Young Man from Atlanta. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, this is Horton Foote's play that was first done on Broadway in 1997. Uh, Then it had Rip Torn in it um, as um, a high-flying executive who uh, just bought a new house, going to buy a new power for his wife. Everything's going great. Uh, He hasn't realized that um, he's aged a bit, and as a result, the company wants a younger man on the scene. Now, the play takes place in 1950, and uh, this is a phenomenon that certainly would happen as the years went on. Um, there was a time, of course, when um, old age um, in, uh, meant experience and um, know-how, but um, but that was to change, and Horton Foote is suggesting it, it was starting to happen as early as uh, 1950. Um, it seems like 1950 in the play as well for a number of reasons, even though he says he works out, which strikes me as a phrase that uh, came into existence much later. But um, here we have Aidan Quinn, almost unrecognizable from the Aidan Quinn we knew from way back when, um, as this blustery man, Will Kidder, um, who really believes he has the world by the tail and finds out that he doesn't. And of course, once a man is stripped of um, his occupation, it's very hard for him to continue. And of course, then it becomes a big problem when you have to tell your wife who is used to spending money gloriously. Uh, they have had a tragedy, a big tragedy, and uh, that is the fact that their son um, died mysteriously. From the way it it's laid out, it does seem to be a suicide, um, but... Uh, the wife, uh, whose name is Lily Dale, certainly a name that shows up in a lot of uh, Horton Foot, um, does not believe that. Um, like so many people who are utterly desperate and have no way to turn, she turns to religion. And she also turns to the young man from Atlanta, uh, the man who knew her son. And um, we're starting to put the pieces together that he, he knew him in the biblical sense. This never comes up. Never. However, um, there are so many clues to this, so many indications that it's hard to uh, come to any other conclusion. But it's 1950. And as a result, neither Will nor his wife, Lily Dale, are remotely prepared to consider that as a topic of conversation. Way down deep, we get the impression they know that, but boy, have they been fighting it, and boy, have they been looking for other reasons. There's a lot here about extortion. There's a lot here about another young man from Atlanta who we do see, uh, who does come in and has a lot to say. Now, 
um, as wonderful as Aiden Quinn is, uh, we do have a tiny problem, and not as big as it might be, with Christine Nielsen. Now, strangely enough, when I was watching her, I was thinking of the Judy Garland movie that recently happened, because there I felt that Renee Zellweger was magnificent, but every now and then she looked like Renee Zellweger. Well, similarly speaking here, Christine Nielsen is very funny for playing wild, eccentric, silly, uh, off-the-wall characters, and she does it very well, and certainly she's uh, gotten much acclaim for that. But this is the part that she has to play it straight. And um, I have to say that uh, there are times when the actual Christine Nielsen we've all known and some of us have loved um, comes through and she acts a little silly with that flustered look and and the hands um, fluttering and all that kind of business, which shouldn't happen. But by and large, director Michael Wilson has taken a chance on her and has really reined her in to give much of the time, uh, perhaps 90% of the time, which is an A where I went to school, um, has really reined her in so that she gives a, a, a fine performance when she has to really show this this wife who has really uh, endured such a tragedy with her son and now is going to endure a tragedy with her husband. So, so I thought it was a terrific revival. I think it's a quite wonderful play. And the thing is, however... I have to say the audience I was with um, found a lot of it funny. And I think that might have something to do with Christine Nielsen. But to be fair, in the first scene, long before Christine Nielsen steps on stage, yeah, they were laughing at the situation because Will seemed naive in not seeing what was coming, which we knew was coming in so many ways, not just because we've had the experience of seeing so many people in our lives lose jobs because they're perceived to be too old, but also because of the person he's talking to in the office. I will just leave it at that. But um, it's amazing to me that so many people found so much of this funny when it really is quite a tragedy. And maybe it's just because we just know um, so many people who have gone through this and the fact that Will is naive about it. I don't know. Still, I think it's a terrific production. I wish it well. And I'm very glad to have seen it again uh, with these quite wonderful people in it. Um, also, Harriet D. Foy is in it. Uh, and she has a very significant part and does it extraordinarily well. So um, I can recommend it very highly. Great. So that is The Young Man from Atlanta at the Signature Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Michael, you got over to MCC to see uh, Roll in Seared. So tell us, what did you think of the, this play? Yes, Raul Esparza in Seared, which is not a musical, but is very operatic, I would say. There's a lot of emotion in it. He plays a very, very talented extremely temperamental, uh, one might say diva-ish chef, cook, uh, in, a, in a restaurant in Brooklyn that is just starting to get a lot of attention because he is such an artist when it comes to cooking. And, uh, uh, well, first of all, it, Raul's performance is is a primary reason to see this. He really is just in, very intense and and 
extremely watchable in it and you can't take your eyes off him and and he's got so much stage presence and it almost seems as if the part could have been written for him by Teresa Rebeck. I wonder if it was. I don't know if she's made any comments on that, but whether or not she had him in mind, he fits the role like a glove. Uh, the other actors are uh, David Mason, who is uh, plays Mike, who is uh, supposed to be Harry's, the chef's business partner. And then there's Rodney, uh, played by W. Trey Davis, who I guess is supposed to be um, a waiter, but also it's supposed to be a very small restaurant. So he functions in several capacities. And then there's this woman named Emily, uh, played by Krista Rodriguez, who shows up and she is a quote unquote consultant. And she's going to try to bring this restaurant to the next level. But the problem is that... um, Harry, the chef, played by Rola Sparza, is very, very gifted, but also uh, very difficult. <laughs> and uh, one might say extremely neurotic. And he wants to do things his way. Uh, and he doesn't want anyone to dictate to him. And uh, But this includes even a couple of things which, I, I to me, I would say... S- stretch credibility i'm not sure if peter would agree because I, I i think you like the play uh the writing of it a lot better than i did uh-huh. overall uh what is supposed we're supposed to think is that f- the the first thing that gains notoriety for the restaurant is that one night uh, a, a critic comes in and harry makes uh scallops in such a divine way <laughs> that this critic you know, goes just flying off to the moon and, and writes an unbelievable rave review uh, with specifically praise for the scallops. Uh, mm-hmm. But then um, but then Harry refuses to make them again because supposedly uh, because he uh, doesn't think he could get the quality of scallops uh, that he found on that one occasion ever again anywhere. Uh, And so he, uh, you know, he's like actively working against this thing and people keep coming in asking for the scallops because of this rave review and he won't make them. So, I mean, first of all, I just don't know how believable that is. Um, I'm I'm no chef, but, you know, there's always going to be a variation, some variation in ingredients, even if you get something from the same place all the time uh so and the fact that he would think that the difference in quality of the scallops themselves would be that noticeable uh to the to the diners uh, it just seemed to me a a little much well what i would say here is um there is a moment a, a silent moment in the play where he whips up some sort of dish he tastes it and he immediately throws it into the wastebasket. <laughs> yes. And yes. so um, I guess that indicates he really does have high standards. So as a result, um, even though it may seem strange to us that he can't get the scallops to be exactly the way they were on that perfect night, um, that scene would seem to indicate that he really, really, really is very finicky about this, that, and the other thing. So who knows? It may be off by a scintilla, but to this mm-hmm. guy, that's uh, more than enough. Well, and we could also say it's exaggeration for stage purposes, too. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are c- quite close to that. In I agree. Real life. I agree. Uh, but in real life, they would be, you know, perhaps 
their awareness of the necessary the necessity to keep the business going and not have the place close <laughs> because people would stop coming if he didn't make the scallops that might uh, you know overcome his his uh, his reservations about doing it again whereas in a play uh, you, you know you can exaggerate it even more and, and make him seem even more unreasonable. But that, that feeds into the thing that, uh, you know, of all things, people, uh, Peter, it made me think of your remarks about Man of La Mancha. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess it comes to a point where if a character seems so insane uh, that you can, you can lose interest in them uh, uh, and, and maybe they become actually unlikable because they're so neurotic and so nuts. And I guess I felt that that started to happen uh, for me with Harry. Uh, Then the other thing that happens, I won't spend too much time on it, but then the play is continuing. And and one night, um, another critic, uh, they arrange for another critic to come without telling Harry. And so then uh, there's much discussion of, you know, whether or not they're going to tell him. They decide not to tell him, but then they decide to tell him just as the critic arrives. So it's like, and and what happens? But Harry, well, I I don't know if this is a spoiler. Um, All right. This might be a spoiler. He walks out. He walks out and leaves uh, this other character, (laughs) uh, Rodney, to whip up the meal. Uh, and it's just like, well, there's so many things wrong with that. I mean, if they weren't going to tell him, then why did they choo- choose to tell him then? And also would his actual walking out is, is that remotely credible? Even, even if he was really upset about it. I mean, perhaps if it had been set up that he said that he had told uh, the others, listen, if a critic ever comes, I absolutely want you to let me know ahead of time, or I don't want you to let me know ahead of time. If he had given specific instructions about it, that might be one thing. But here we're just supposed to believe that they thought they wouldn't tell him. Then they decide to tell him at the last moment, and he goes ballistic and walks out. And I just thought it was that was maybe a little too much exaggeration for the stage. Uh, so that's it. The word scallops, I am going to tell you, this is probably not an exaggeration, is probably mentioned a hundred times. <laughs> and I was a please stop talking about the scallops. That's so you know. funny because so many people object to noises off because they can't stand the <laughs> word uh, sardines, which uh, may set the record for the, uh, that type of thing. <laughs> Good point. Although, of course, I, I would say it's different when it's supposed to be for comic effects. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I had I had I did not like the writing as much as Peter did. I, th- mm-hmm. I thought the play would have been um, better if it was uh, one act and had about 15 minutes cut from it, including maybe 50 of those mentions of the word scallops. Um, <laughs> and uh, but. All of that said, it's it's very entertaining for the performances and for the situation. I think uh, that, you know, this this is set in a restaurant, but it could be extrapolated to anything else. We could, you know, it, they might as well be actors working on a play or um, uh, I, I suppose it could be in a business setting also. Uh, it's always in, interesting and entertaining to watch extreme personalities in, in situations like this. And Raul Esparza is as I said several times before, perfect, perfect casting. And I, he's so good in this that I don't, 
I don't even think you'll miss the fact that he's not singing. All right. So that is seared, and it has been extended again. Yes, to the twenty second of December. So you have a chance to get there if you love scallops. I'm hearing much talk of uh, Broadway transfer eventually. Really? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, that always happens. But I I, in this in this case, I think maybe there might be a lot to it. Wow. If it were to transfer, that would be like a miracle on 42nd Street. <laughs> Wait one second. That's not the right street. Miracle on 34th Street. Our friends over at the Argyle Theater in Babylon have a production of Miracle on 34th Street. And Michael, you got a chance to get out to the Babylon Village and check it out. So tell us about it. Believe it or not, this is the third production of this musical that I have seen. <laughs> uh, I would say one of the most obscure musicals uh, of its era and deservedly so. Unfortunately, this show was snake bit from the beginning when it was called here's love uh, played on Broadway from October 3rd, 1963 to July 26th, 25th 1964 and if you um think about those dates for a minute uh you'll you'll immediately realize one way in which it was snake bit because uh when we remember what happened on november 22nd 1963 Mm -hmm. um so that was one thing i I mean uh, so so the show opened it's all about christmas based on the musical Miracle on 34th Street, uh, originally titled Here's Love, but ma- based on the on the movie, excuse me, Miracle on 34th Street. Um, and uh, so it opened in early October, and I guess they uh, were counting on big sales through the, through the Christmas season. Um, I don't know how long they anticipated it running after that. It did, in fact, run to July uh, 25th, 1964, as I said, um, despite the Kennedy assassination. Uh, So it wasn't a, you would not say it was a tremendous flop, but uh, it's really, unfortunately, uh, a very, very bad musical with book music and lyrics by Meredith Wilson. Uh, We, um, at one point had one of the stars of the original production, Janice Page, on our podcast. And she told us that aside from the Kennedy tragedy, uh, it just was a very, very bad time for Meredith Wilson during the creative process because of challenges in his personal life. And she attributed um, the, you know, I mean, she was very, uh, she was very uh, nice about it, but she uh, but she intimated that the quality of the writing might have been a lot better if he didn't have all those challenges to deal with. It's it's really uh, the adaptation is quite quite poor. Uh, the movie is wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's dated incredibly well, considering that it's uh, from 1947. Uh, But the adaptation, uh, Wilson made very odd changes uh, that are all for the worse, I would say. The basic story is the same. It's uh, about this um, woman named Doris who works. She's an executive at Macy's, and she's in charge of putting together the annual parade. She's one of the main architects of the parade, and she has a young daughter uh, named Susan, but uh, the crux of the plot is that uh, um, Doris has had a bad 
experience with a man, uh, a very bad experience with a man, and she's now divorced. And so she mistrusts men and she uh, doesn't like uh, fairy tales and she's into reality and she doesn't think that children should be taught that there's a Santa Claus when there's no such thing uh, in the same way that they shouldn't be, that little girls shouldn't be taught that, um, you know, there are Prince Charmings that will come and marry them and, and life will be wonderful. So, um, so she is, that's the kind of character she is. Um, but then there's this fellow who lives uh, in their building and his name is Fred Gailey. And he uh, is very attracted to Doris and he's trying to get together with her, but he's also um, trying to bring, um, you know, maybe some childhood uh, 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 fantasies and a belief in Santa Claus to Susan's life. So there's that conflict there. Um, And it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. But as I said, the adaptation is, is very poor. Um, And in particular, the, of all things, uh, as I said, the movie was 1947, the musical is 1963, but the way that Wilson rewrote it, uh, actually there's a regression in terms of the sexual politics, um, in the movie, John Payne plays Fred Gailey, and he's a really wonderful guy. He's, uh, he's a, a lawyer, uh, and he is, He's just very nice, and he treats Doris and and Susan very respectfully. But here he's been made to be – he's still a lawyer, but he's made to be an ex-Marine, and he is uh, quite a male chauvinist pig. And he even has a song Mm. that he sings to Doris called Look Little Girl. And which uh, some of the lyrics are, look, little girl, when it comes to dames, I wrote the book, little girl. Can you imagine um, in 1963? Well, I I don't know how this went over then. I can't imagine it went over well. It goes over even even less well now. Um, I will say this production at the Argyle did cut another song completely called oh. She Had to Go Back. <laughs> yes. Uh, she Had to Go Back, which is more sexist by far than Look Little Girl. Ironically enough, um, I am convinced that that was a trunk song that Meredith Wilson wrote to entertain people at parties uh, because it has nothing whatsoever to do with Miracle on 34th Street. Nothing. I wouldn't be surprised. And another song that might have been a trunk song was this. Uh, at some point, all of a sudden, everyone starts singing an ode to Kansas. <laughs> right. Yes, I do believe that's the, in the same situation. A state song for Kansas. You know, I love the title <laughs> song of Here's Love. I love the opening number, the big clown balloons. Meredith Wilson loved to add syllables here and there. And I certainly like that man over there is Santa Claus. The rest of it, I think, is really tough stuff. And I wish somebody would try it again because you watch this movie and the songs just leap out at you. Yes. And, you know, there are so many missed opportunities. And it's it's just frightening um, how this one was really botched. And it's it's such a shame because people would love a good musical on Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, this uh, the Argyle production was strong in terms of the cast. Uh, Tony Triano, Triano as Chris Kringle, Ira Kramer as Fred Gailey, and Tiffany Borelli as Doris Walker. Uh, Susan Walker uh, double cast uh, Cordelia Commando and Raquel Levin 
Shiaka, and uh, uh, directed by Evan Pappas. One odd thing in this <laughs> production, though, I, I I take issue with this. I don't know what brought this on. Every time they they mention Santa Claus, I swear to God, every person calls him Santa Claus. Hmm. Uh, which drove me up the wall. Um, <laughs> and it reminded me of that Marx Brothers bit. You know, Remember I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the Marx Isn't Brothers are talking. I, I think it's Chico and Groucho That's when they right. were going through a, a, con- a contract or right. something. That's right. And Chico said, and, and Groucho goes, what's that? What's that? He goes, he goes that's a, the sanity clause. He goes, what? He goes, that's a, the sanity clause. And he goes, you can't fool me. There's no such thing as sanity clause. <laughs> uh, so that's what I kept thinking of. And every time they said it, I giggled. But I don't know what that was about. Um, the big clown balloons. Interesting, you mentioned that. Did you like it, Peter? I, I always that always annoyed the heck out of me. And when I read it uh, in, in in the program for the um, for the Argyle production, it is indeed printed. The title is printed as Big Clown C A dash L O W N balloons um i looked up the title of the song on ibdb and i think it just says the big clown balloons oh really Uh, uh, well i mean that's what it says there that doesn't mean i i'm pretty sure that on the on the cast album originally it had clown but the first time i got that album i was like well what does that mean i thought maybe it was a word i didn't know i thought maybe it was a word for that that type of very large balloon that has helium in it but i guess it's just supposed to be the word clown but then that doesn't make any sense because not all of the balloons are clowns you know they're animals they're they're cartoon characters so Snoopy i has been uh, constant since 1968 by the way i recently gave a, a talk on the the macy's thanksgiving day parade so i did learn that um, oh really yeah, I, I this is such an irrelevant story, but I think it's so funny. When I got the cast album, um, which I bought in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is um, quite a few miles away from Arlington, where I was growing up, I put on the album, and um, now this is an LP, and I'm putting on the um, the tone arm down, and um, something's wrong with my needle. So I literally go back to where I was um, back in Cambridge to buy a new needle or stylus is the fancy name was. I came back, I replaced it and still the same problem. The album begins with the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the distance. Oh, yes. Yes. It's, it's very, very mute and silent at the beginning. And then, you know, the stereo effect comes in and they march in and uh, it becomes robust. But um, I didn't realize that. And I thought something was wrong with my needle. So. Here's Love really cost me, not just for the album, for a new needle, which I probably didn't need. You know? so, so I was not getting off to a good start. But I have to say, it's one of my favorite logos. Here's Love, not necessarily Miracle on 34th Street. And uh, as soon as I saw that logo on that album, I had to have it. So anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, those, those are pretty much my thoughts on Miracle on 34th Street uh, slash Here's Love. But I do... Uh, I think it's kind of amazing that I've seen three productions. I have two. Two of them were many years ago. One was a high school production and the other was a community theater production, both on Staten Island. And I remember reviewing the community theater production and talking about the show itself, the piece, saying Here's Love is an absolutely wretched show. And I I can't 
uh, say that I've changed my opinion. <laughs> uh, I've, I've seen three productions as well. The original with, by the way, Michael Bennett uh, being a chorus boy in it, um, a production wow. in Baltimore, Maryland, um, at a community theater where um, a young man who was well, a kid, not a young man, he was a child, because there are a lot of children in the show, who was in it, uh, has since become a friend, uh, Bill Camberger, who many of you may know from Facebook, uh, a very smart musical theater maven. And um, and then there was a benefit performance that Jim Brochu played um, Chris Kringle uh, at um, the St. Luke's Theater a few uh, years ago. Mm, so, yeah. you know, as that title is just so magical, Miracle on 34th Street, that people are going to go and... I think a lot of people will be pleased by it simply because it is that story. And I think they get away with murder for that reason. Well, on that note, the good news, which I definitely want to state, is that this was absolutely the the largest audience by far that ah, I have yet seen ah, at the Argyle. See? So I, uh, maybe it's partly that they're you know they're turning a corner because they they have been doing good shows consistently and mm-hmm. people are hearing about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure a lot of it is the title and the fact that it's a holiday show and people want something to bring the kids to. Sure, and it is family friendly. Oh or, yeah, or, or oh, listen, yeah. whatever you say about it. So actually, their next show coming up is The Little Mermaid. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think they may be on a uh, on a on a you know a good track here. The show after that is Cabaret. So maybe <laughs> so maybe the kiddies might want to sit that one out. Um, but uh, although <laughs> maybe you know, the parents will want the kiddies to sit it out. <laughs> the kiddies probably would like to be there, but that's another story. <laughs> right. Right. But I was really happy to see it packed. Absolutely packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was the good news. And, and uh, I mean, I wish it had been for a, 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 you know, a show where the material was better, but you take what you can get. And it made it did my heart good to see it so packed. All right. So as I gaze out my window right now. The oh, is snow, it snowing? The snow has is it? started. Oh, has it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it it it. Everything is in alignment with our with our podcast. Mm-hmm. Everything. So, um, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, of course, asks asks the question: um, yeah. Is there a Santa Claus, and how much do you believe? And uh, Peter, are you going to answer it with this next review because it's the giant hoax down at Theater Row? <laughs> I think you, if children are listening, I think you just spoiled their Christmas. Anyway. Um, <laughs> The Giant Hoax um, is has a book, music, and lyrics by a woman named Kit Goldstein Grant. Now, usually when one person does everything, it's not a good sign. And um, that includes Meredith Wilson on Here's Love. Um, but I will say that um, I do think that this woman is tremendously talented. And I do believe her lyrics are extraordinarily good. Now, it's one thing when um, when you have four lines in a song and um, <clears throat> the second and fourth lines rhyme and the first and third don't. I mean, that's a very common convention. But it's harder when one and three rhyme as well as two and four. And um, Kit Goldstein Grant does not take the easy way out and does that quite a bit. And Perfect Rhymes. Wonderful scansion. Um, terrific job there. So um, all that's in good shape. And this is one of those situations where you say, I can't wait to see her next show. Um, this is a very strange show. And as time goes on, it feels more like a TYA show than, than a show for adults. Because it is about um, an entrepreneur 
who uh, claims that he has this uh, giant who's 10 and a half feet tall and weighs 2,990 pounds, uh, the carcass of him, and you can come into this carnival and see him. And P.T. Barnum, of course, who um, was certainly uh, made his reputation on things like this, uh, wants to take over. Uh, this business and uh, make sure that he gets it. All this is seen through the eyes of a little girl. She's not played by a little girl, but she certainly does a very, very good job. Her name is Stacy Stout, and uh, she's no kid, but nevertheless, she's very convincing as a child, as far as these things go. Nobody's going to be fooled into thinking she is a child, but you know, you've seen so many times where adults have to play children, and they're not remotely convincing. Uh, this young woman does a very good job at that. Very good indeed. So um, there's not much of a story. And I do think that the title shouldn't be what it is because it indicates that from the outset that this um, being that uh, the um, that the entrepreneur has um, is <laughs> is certainly providing a hoax. And that's supposed to be kept from us from a long time. But it's really not kept from us at all because, indeed, um, we know from the title. Anyway, um, I, I do want to say to Kit Goldstein, Grant, please keep writing. Please find a property you can adapt rather than take on all three jobs for yourself. I always wonder, by the way, when um, somebody takes on all three jobs, if indeed um, he or she did go looking for a book writer and couldn't find one and then say, oh, what the hell, I'll do it myself. That may not be the case here, of course. It may not be remotely the case, but I always wonder if that's the case. And under those circumstances, maybe when you get enough book writers telling you, no, I don't want to do it, maybe you shouldn't do it. Um, so, um, but please, Kit Goldstein Grant, make sure you let me know when you do your next one. I'm there. All right. So that was The Giant Hoax. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And Peter, you also got out to Brooklyn to theater for a new audience. Uh, Feifu or Fifu? And her Fefu. Fefu. F-E-F-U. Um, this takes me back, uh, back to uh, the late 70s, I think it was, when it was first done at the American Place Theater, which we now know as the Laura Pels Theater. And um, what I remember most about that evening more than anything else, is that there was a talk back at the end. And Maria Irina Fornes uh, was up there and said, quite frankly, this is a quote, I think I got away with murder with this play. And what she means is that there is a device which I don't want to give away. Too many critics have given it away. And if you've avoided reviews of this play, uh, well, you ain't going to hear the big thing from me. But the real bottom line is there is an extraordinary theatrical um, coup de theatre that you, one of those things, you know, you have to be in the theater to see. You can't get this on your quasar at home. You can't get it at the quad at the movies. No, you have to be there. And um, it is a terrific, terrific device. But the thing is, because the device is so terrific, um, you, for a while, are so carried away with the novelty of the device that um, you forgive the fact that not much is happening and it doesn't seem to be put together terribly well. Now, I will say that um, the device allows you to see what other theater goers are thinking and uh, from their faces. And um, let me say that early on, there were, there were 
just smiles of delight. Everybody was so glad to be in a situation that um, <laughs> was unique, unique. I, you know, I'm, here I am closing in on 12,000 shows. I've never had an experience like this. And um, except for the two times I've seen it before. But anyway, um, but as time goes on, those faces turned into glazed. Um, I'm a little bored. Um, so uh, not enough happens in some respects. And I can imagine a lot of people saying, what are you talking about? I mean, uh, certainly very dramatic things do happen as time goes on. Yes, that's mostly in the last scene. But there are four scenes in between where it's um, very hard to get a handle on what's going on. Well, I will have to say that um, Adam Rigg, who did the sets, um, and there are mm, four of them maybe, um, did a phenomenal job in getting into the period because we're talking about the 30s where this play takes place. So um, did a beautiful job, and um, some of these uh, rooms are, are ones that you'd like to uh, walk into right now. I also have to say Amelia Workman as the very mannish, and intentionally so, Thefu did a terrific job. I think everybody in it is very good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, apparently she did get away with murder because <laughs> here's another production all these years later. And um, we do have to credit her for being an imaginative. But beyond that, I don't think it's a satisfying play. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia question, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. Uh, we are played by iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Do you have a question for this week's trivia? Sure. In the 60s, a successful Broadway songwriting team took on a world-famous property and turned it into a musical. But... They weren't allowed to use many of the property's famous characters. In the 70s, the same team, when adapting another world-famous property, had the same experience all over again, not being allowed to use many of the property's famous characters. Who's the songwriting team? What are the two original properties? And what are the two musicals? Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's Lucy Pussy time. She was a get but she's back again. It's Lucy Pussy time. Her time is running out and we all know.